broadband. We need it for work and for school, for our health and our economy. What's being done to bring broadband internet access within reach of every American? Let's talk about it now on Rural Broadband Today. Here's your host, Stephen Smith. And thanks for tuning in today. Uh, I'm your host, Stephen Smith, and I'm delighted to have on uh, Rural Broadband Today podcast, Dr. Alan Pratt. He is the executive director of the National Rural Education Association. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Pratt. Hey, thanks for having me, and thanks for uh, allowing us to talk about uh, what we feel like is one of the most important areas of uh, reopening schools is uh, broadband connectivity, and also was very important to us actually before COVID because we knew there were some discrepancies and issues where our students didn't have access all the time. Well, we have certainly seen the uh, the pandemic impact lots of different areas of life uh, across America. And one of those that seems to be uh, really rising to the top is how it is impacting our students, our teachers, and, um, and, and broadband's a very important part of that. So that's really what brings you to the, the show today is uh, I had noticed a letter that you co-authored in, in, in support of some uh, initiatives with uh, Shirley Bloomfield, the CEO of NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association, so we're going to kind of unpack that letter today, uh, but before we do, I want to give our uh, I want to give our listeners a little bit of background on you. I know that uh, as executive director of uh, you, you come to that position at NREA with uh, with a lot of background as a as a teacher and a coach and a principal, assistant superintendent. Uh, kind of walk us through your path of how you got to the NREA. Well, you know, actually, it's um, pretty uh, interesting for. Uh, my journey. I never, if you went back, uh, this is 25 years in uh, public ed technically, uh, and all of them, but one had been in a rural education environment. Um, you know, I, I, I never would have thought 25 years ago that I would be doing the work I'm doing now. I thought I'd just be a teacher and a coach and do my deal. And uh, this has been the most rewarding uh, job I've ever had um, in the sense of, you know, working from uh, how we can help you know, rural communities across the country. And, and, and in, in my four years on this job, I've traveled to 48 states. So I've not made Alaska and Hawaii. Those are two that we always work to towards. Uh, but I've seen a lot of schools that are, uh, that are amazing and do amazing work, uh, from one-room schoolhouses in Montana to larger rural school districts in Colorado and, and uh, the Northeast. So it's, uh, it's very captivating to see the work that goes on daily in our rural schools and communities. And it's really amazing the transition we made in March with the COVID and how we transitioned to an online environment and how so, so many schools did such a great job. Well, for those who aren't familiar with uh, the NREA, tell us a little bit about that organization. One thing that uh, really stood out to me uh, from your website was that uh, this is a one of the, uh, this is the oldest established a national organization of its kind dating back to what was it 1907 yeah we're we're one of the old we are actually the oldest uh education association rural education association and really um you know we we have uh, state affiliates we have 42 state affiliates and alabama does have a state affiliate it's the university of west alabama and uh, they they do a uh, i rep 
organization across the state of Alabama. Uh, we have members in all 50 states, and that includes researchers and universities, from classroom teachers, school board members, uh, community members, and also, of course, uh, uh, school directors and uh, anyone that basically has a touch or an impact on rural communities has been involved in our association. Okay. Well, um, this letter that I referenced earlier was um, was written. Uh, we, we're recording this in the last week of July, so about a week or so ago it was released. And uh, one thing from that letter I'd, I'd like to talk about a minute before we move into uh, what's going to happen this this school year? Uh, the school year that that ended uh, several weeks ago uh, ended in a in a very uh, unique way, very challenging way. And uh, your, your teachers and uh, and educators in general had really you know short short notice to uh, adapt to to a learning environment where you know kids had to go home, uh, teachers had to go home and do online learning, remote learning. Talk about the challenges that that created and how those rural educators responded to that. Uh, you know, for, you know, our, our school systems, uh, especially our rural school systems, do a great job of taking care of their school, uh, their, their schools and their chill, uh, students and, and really provide a lot of wraparound services to, to those uh, uh, students in need, especially feeding programs. So I think the first aspect of it when we knew we were going to be in a rapid shutdown and a rapid uh, uh, in-home delivery of instruction was the fact that we wanted to maintain and make sure our students were fed. And I think the the step up of uh, our cafeteria staffs, custodial workers, uh, you know, school board members, director of schools, central office folks, and especially our teachers and principals went above and beyond to provide those services, continue those services as we went through this pandemic. Uh, you know, you have to realize that a lot of these school systems were not set up with a learning management system that was online. Some did, some did not. So uh, they shifted rapidly, and in some cases, in a week to full online instruction and or uh, some type of uh, remote uh, synchronous or asynchronous learning with their students. And now as we move into a, a fall, there's a, a, new, a new semester. There's a lot of uncertainty that we're hearing from uh, school systems in terms of um, what that new school year is going to look like. Um, a lot of them are talking about a hybrid approach. I know uh, locally with our school system, the, the students have options of uh, e- either going in person or doing online uh, remote studies. And, of course, that creates, a, you know, really two sets of, of types of students that the teachers uh, have have to manage the workflow from. Uh, what are you seeing across the board in uh, in, in rural education? I think you hit a good point. There's, there's every district that we're that or actually state district that we're seeing is is offering some form of hybrid approach or a staggered start. Uh, that would allow students to do a blending model of doing online and in person and some doing total virtual, which will be 100 percent online. So that's kind of the, the, the new norm. Uh, I know everyone kind of gets tired of hearing that term or that phrase, but uh, that's that's kind of what's going on. We are seeing uh, a kind of an uptick of cases, and, and especially in the southeast. So we're seeing school districts uh request waivers from their state departments to move to starting school after Labor Day. I know our local district voted last night to start after Labor Day. So I think those things are going to happen. I also think that, I, you know, I don't 
believe, and I'm not trying to predict the future, but I don't believe we'll have a mass shutdown of every school system across the state. I think phased in or and or pauses of certain schools if cases arise or, or increase. Uh, I think we have to kind of look at it that way. Uh, I, I will tell you, locally for your local school systems in general, people need to have patience because there's not a right answer. I mean, there's there's options and they're, they're going to do the best they can to make those decisions, but they're not going to be perfect and they're going to change sometimes on a daily and hourly uh, way. So you're looking at situations where districts may roll out plans. And I know districts have rolled out plans across the nation in July and they've already changed those as we head into August. So it's not going to be perfect. They're going to do the best they can. But I do think uh, in this year that we're currently experiencing with the presidential election and other things, everything's going to get politicized a little bit more. So uh, school districts have to kind of face, you know, the, the fact of, hey, we're going to do this. It's not going to be perfect, but we're going to offer in-person and virtual. Sometimes it'll be all virtual. Sometimes it won't. So I think those things are going to be at the forefront of every decision. And uh, child, you know, children and, and staff safety is going to be number one for these districts. And I think that's where they're going to you know, uh, every decision is going to be based on that safety factor. Well, that is a great point that I would just like for us to emphasize here for a moment that the plans that we're making even now, those uh, local school boards and, and the principals and, and those educators, that, that even those plans might have to adjust as we move closer to the, the school start date and that we could even have plans change after that. And I think it's real important uh, to, just for us to pause and emphasize here that as a parent um, and even students and the community in general, uh, th- there needs to be a call for patience as these educators try to make the best decision for those students in an environment that is very fluid. Yeah, hey, you did, that's a good way to put it. I mean, you did a, nice, a much nicer job than I would have probably, but <laughs> it, it, it is a, um, I don't envy superintendents and I don't envy school boards and, and what teachers are going to face. This is going to be, this will be the toughest situations and or uh, work flow through that they've ever experienced. And you're not, we're not trained to deal with this. Uh, we're learning a lot on the, on the, on the go. And uh, you know, th- I, I don't think people begin to understand that we're not going to, I don't think we're going to get back to where we were in a normal situation ever again. I'm not putting a doom and gloom message on. I'm saying what we're dealing with and experiencing is going to change education forever. It's a lot of good. And there'll be some things that we'll miss because of uh, it's just not going to be that way anymore. Mm. Well, I think uh, whatever the outcome and, and what things look like a year, two, three years from now, I think we can always, put a flag in the ground right here and say that uh, one of the hardest jobs in America, and that's of a, of a classroom teacher has just gotten a lot more challenging because of the situation that we're looking at. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. I mean, and I, and I don't mean to be doom and gloom. I'm not trying to be, I just think it's going to be a, um, it's going to be a difficult situation, but, but I also see things that are going to come out of this that are going to be very positive. I, I think you know, just like the letter that we talked about forming partnerships and working together with rural broadband associations and rural broadband uh, providers, you know, that, that relationship needs to strengthen between schools and rural broadband providers. And I think that's going to be 
that relationship's going to build. I also think the, to me personally, I think the connectivity issue is also an economic development issue. So the more connectivity we have, the better chances we can have remote working and or uh, industry coming into our areas that need that connectivity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, having that uh, quality, reliable uh, network at the local level impacts uh, really just all facets of life. And that moves us right into uh, this letter. Uh, one of the key barriers that you, you mentioned in this joint letter is that uh, in order for remote learning to be effective, there has to be that connectivity. And we hear people talk a lot about access. Well, does that student have access? Is there access to a broadband network um, in that neighborhood, in that community? And uh, you really look at access in two different ways in this letter. So I'd like to get you to uh, unpack that for me. Well, I, th I think when you, I think we have to define what, you know, broadband or access to the internet looks like, because a lot of people feel like if they have a phone, they have access to broadband or internet. Um, that's not necessarily the case. It's a cellular network. So, you know, understanding and, and really uh, educating people on what good connectivity looks like and what their requirements are going to need to access learning management systems or instruction online at their home is going to be different than using a cell phone. So those, that's the first part I think that's very important. You know, a lot of our schools are connected to a, to a level that is pretty good. And, uh, you know, our last mile slash homework gap is the big issue that we're dealing with. So that making sure everyone have ac has access at home, that's the big challenge. Right. And, and in this letter, you describe really two types of access, and that's defined as um, not only the uh, – the presence of uh, the, you know, the availability of, of an internet connection at that particular home, but also whether or not they even have that connection there and, and what type of connection that is and can they afford that. And, uh, and, and following that, I, you really lay out, uh, you, you and Shirley Bloomfield in this letter, a, a good approach for tackling that. And you have four steps here. I'd, I'd like for us to walk through uh, that really begins uh you know, as you say here, a, a simple process that's built upon a dialogue. And so the first one of those being just determining um, who who among the student population actually has access. Yeah, I think, you know, that goes back to the definition. Uh, and what we ran into this spring was districts doing surveys or re reaching out about access or access points and really looking at uh what their de what their definition of access would be, and I think that's number one. I think the districts did a good job trying to find out, and I think people became aware of what good access or good connection uh, is uh, is needed. So I think that you're right. That's the first definition or or uh, step laid out. And I think that's an important one to really survey and and get results from your local community. And then your uh, second step here talks about the local schools working with those local broadband providers. Have you seen instances where that is working in the country and, and what might be a good model for that? Yeah, there's, there's cases all over America, uh, especially rural communities that are working with uh, the rural broadband associations to set up, you know, Wi-Fi, not really hotspots, but Wi-Fi stations. 
Uh, I know in Virginia, there's a rural district that, that worked with their local rural broadband association to set up these solar-powered Wi-Fi hubs, and they moved them around the community, and I think they rolled out about 10, and uh, students could pull up download their assignments and then go home in the car, you know, if they're a high school student, but also parents could take them up and drive up and do the same thing or drive up near the school building to access the, the broadband, the Wi-Fi at the school building. So those have been really important. I know uh, a lot of our districts are using the CARES Act money to, to buy uh, hotspot devices. And what I call devices, actually the little hub or the little device itself, and they're purchasing those from uh, – cellular services and or uh, their rural provi providers to uh, allow students to have access at home and they're controlling those over some um, some form or some type of cloud service that they can lock them down, but open access from, you know, say eight to eight uh, during the day. So it's been, uh, those stories have been really encouraging and I think that work is going on and that's still going to happen this fall because we're, we're not going to address this and solve this by the time we start school August, September. So we have to find those fixes or those areas where we can kind of coexist and work together yeah it's it's a big issue to tackle that's that's for sure and uh, not only the availability as you talk about but the uh, uh, can that student uh, afford that can that family afford the connection and then do they have a device if they do there's it's it's multifaceted that's for sure and I think districts are, are doing the device purchasing and loans of devices for their students, which I think that's good with the CARES Act money. And I know states have set up these uh, state-level contracts or bids or RFPs to make that happen. And, you know, another important factor is can families afford it? And, and you know, the affordability of, it, of having broadband in the home. And I think those uh, those services that can be provided through some type of uh, subsidy from the government, either local or federal, really helps out as well. And you say uh, in this letter that uh, ultimately that, that you believe uh, Congress, you know, the, the federal government has a role to play here and that Congress should fund some type of program that would help subsidize those broadband subscriptions. Yeah, you know, I, I think the CARES Act money that was, I, I guess, in May and that money's been rolled out through uh, districts, through their state departments, um, you know, that that's a, a kind of a, I guess, is, is really a starting point, but we know there's a COVID phase five uh, bill. There's three bills out that are going to be worked on. You're going to hear that as we move through August and, and into the fall about how we're going to do this and what kind of funding is going to be provided. And, and every one of those uh, plans that are phase, what we call phase five, have some form or fashion of uh, broadband homework gap addressing either from 1.5 billion uh, that's going to be just to the districts and the states, to $4 billion and the other two plans that would go run through E-rate. So those things are kind of what uh, we're kind of watching at this point. Uh, but we are encouraging, you know, federal dollars are, are much needed, but we're encouraging our districts along with what uh, Shirley uh, Bloomfield is suggesting as well, that we work together with our uh, associations and we start that dialogue and that conversation between rural broadband providers and schools and find out how we can work together until those funds are, we get those funds and or maybe a plan moving forward because we're helping local economy and we're also helping each other. So the, the NREA also serves as a national voice of the uh, rural education uh, the teachers and the local communities uh, before Congress as well, right? 
Yeah, and, and that's the thing. Yeah, and and we're so we're we're we we do work with a lobbying group that that is a house out of D.C. that does a lot of our work uh, and and does a lot of lobbying for us. But we do actually, you know, what we're doing now on a podcast, what we're doing on interviews and, and requests, all that is part of that voice of taking those stories from across the country and sharing them with people to understand what we're dealing with and, and then how we're moving forward. Because it's not a doom and gloom all over the place. It is tough and it's not an easy situation right now, but we're seeing pockets of great things and success of, of, of people working together. And if we can be collaborative and be innovative and change how we do things to make, make learning better for students and help our local community coming out of this, and we'll be better off uh, going through this then coming out just, you know, we're in a bad situation. We're just going to have to deal with it. But we need to move forward and be progressive and do what is needed to help our students. I'm going to walk back through uh, quickly the, the the four points here in the letter. And, and, and that plan lays out the uh, schools and uh, local broadband providers working together to, one, uh, determine uh, who amongst the student population has access to the Internet and, and who doesn't and what that access would look like. Uh, number two being that that local school work with the local broadband provider and uh, to after they identify those addresses and and see which ones are uh, connected or that there's there's a, a, a connection there but that the uh, available then the customer just isn't subscribing uh, number three being that where there is no local provider and the internet is just not available at that location uh, the school stepping into help establish some kind of connection, be it through uh, CARES Act funding or uh, you know, lobbying Congress and try to get those funds available for that purchase, uh, for that purpose. And the fourth step being that once connection is in place, making sure that there's uh, some type of program for those who cannot afford the, uh, the cost of the subscription to be able to access that, uh, leading ultimately to possibly the... Uh, you know, Congress funding some kind of program to subsidize that. What risk are we looking at, Dr. Pratt, if as a nation we don't do this or do something and be very proactive about this? What is the risk? I mean, I think you're looking at a situation where, let's go big picture. I mean, people connected across our whole nation, uh, connected to high-speed Internet, uh, that they can be in touch with others and do learning and, and all that. that, that's a national, it's a national strength for us. So I think that aspect is important. The other aspect I think we're looking at is we don't need a, a group of students coming through that were not given the same ability to learn as other students because of an issue of connectivity. That needs to be taken off the table so we can, everyone can be on equal playing field and we can educate all children and do what we need to do to help our country. I mean, I, I think it's that important. And I think this, coming out of this pandemic, I hope we don't have this broadband discussion that it's an issue again. I hope we're just flowing through and looking at how we can, how we're using it and how we're being uh, effective moving forward in educating students. Absolutely. I think that's, uh, that's everyone's hope. And uh, certainly we've never seen uh, the collective will any stronger than it is today to solve this rural broadband issue, not only with the attention that we're actually seeing a lot of momentum, I think, at the national level before the pandemic, but certainly that has heated up tremendously uh, since then. And then, you know, at the state level, there's so many states 
that have implemented programs out there to help those providers get um, internet access out to those areas that are very remote and, uh, you know, very high cost to build that uh, access to. So I, th- I think we're seeing momentum that we can be encouraged about, don't you? Oh, I definitely, I think, that, I, I just think there's going to be some positives come out of this. And that, that's what I have to tell myself. And that's what I'm seeing from groups. And uh, so we're excited about what the possibilities could be moving forward and how the collaborative relationships that we're gaining and starting are going to move us forward. you know, as we move into 2021 and, and put 2020 behind us, I hope. Mm, absolutely. So what do uh, rural educators need to do uh, right now and how can the NREA help them? Well, you know, I think number one is being that communication line to parents from the school system and the school district, obviously, and their school to parents to let them know that they're doing the best they can. Uh, also, feel free to reach out to us at uh, NREA.net and uh, email me or call me. We're happy to help. Call your local state affiliate uh, in Alabama. That'd be Dr. Jan Miller, University of West Alabama. And, and to provide them input uh, and, and able to, um, you know, to provide a voice. And, and then we're happy to share any resources and or do calls or video chats with any group to say, you know, how can we help you out? How can we move the message forward? And, you um, I think those are going to be key factors. I also think, you know, understanding that we, we're going to have some tough times with this and it's going to be some growing pains, but we're going to get through it and we're going to be stronger as we come through it. Well, that, that's, a, that's a great message. I think something that, that we certainly need to, to latch on to. Uh, Dr. Pratt, do you have uh, any uh, parting words for us today? Anything, uh, any final message you'd like to share with our listeners across the country? Well, I think, you know, as far as a rural broadband divider, don't hesitate to reach out to your school system and your your school superintendents to ask them how you can help. And I know you a lot in many cases you already have, uh, but make sure that line of communication is there. I know they're busy. You're busy. Everyone's busy. But take time to reach out, even if it's a take time to reach out. Hey, what's going on? How can we help? Or we're just checking on you. And I think those things are going to be key. And um you know, we encourage this relationship and we want to see this move forward uh, between our association and, of course, the Rural Broadband Association. Shirley's been great. Uh, and uh, and we just look forward to helping on any area we can with the Rural Broadband Association. Uh, that, that's exciting. And uh, I think there, there's power in partnerships. And uh, that, that's the message that we're hearing to solve what is really the uh, I think the greatest challenge that, that most of us have uh, experienced in our lives, that's for sure. You said it well. I appreciate your, your comments. Thank you. Well, thank you for uh, joining us today. Our guest on Rural Broadband Today has been Dr. Alan Pratt. He is the Executive Director of the National Rural Education Association. And we thank you for listening today to the show where uh, we take a look at the people and the issues that are shaping the rural broadband story across America. I'm your host, Stephen Smith, and this program is produced by WordSouth, a content marketing company. And be sure to share this podcast with your network as we share the rural broadband story. Thank you for listening. Rural Broadband Today is a production of WordSouth, a content marketing company.